0: Alright, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 Where we left off in Ephesians, we saw that by the blood of his cross, Christ has broken down the wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles In Christ, the Gentiles have been brought near and made fellow citizens of the commonwealth of Israel with all the saints Not only that, Christ is building his church of living stones, both Jew and Gentile, such that the whole structure grows into a holy temple where God dwells in and among his people. So with that as our context, let's turn to our text for preaching this morning. We're going to be considering the entire chapter, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have blessed us with the gift of having your word in our language where we can read it uh, pretty much whenever we want to. Uh, Lord, we know that's not been the case for most of church history. And so we want to pray, Lord, that you would help us to not take it for granted and to take full advantage of this most precious gift. Father, we pray now that you would uh, help us as we try to exposit this text. I pray that you would remove, or rather, overcome all of our human weakness, um, help me to properly exposit, help us all properly understand what you are saying to your church. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Alright, so it starts off. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. This was not metaphorical language that Paul was using here. Uh, at the time of his writing Paul actually was imprisoned in Rome particularly because he preached the gospel to the gentiles and told them that they were not required to keep the ceremonial law as we read in Acts just a few moments ago So verses 1 uh excuse me verses 2 through 13 are meant to be somewhat of a parenthesis so hold on to verse 1 for a minute because it's like he starts his thought in verse 1 and he goes off on a sidebar here. and He's going to return back to it at verse 14. Just hold, on, hold that thought. <clears throat> it says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The Lord himself identified Paul as his chosen instrument carry his name to the Gentiles. And Paul also identified himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul had been given the mystery of which he speaks directly by divine revelation. Now, I'm not aware that we have an explicit biblical account of when, exactly when, Paul received his revelation, but I think he may have known it either at the time or shortly after the time of his conversion. Because um, Christ himself appointed Ananias to go lay hands on Paul so that he may receive his sight in the Holy Spirit. And in his instructions to Ananias, he said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So that was Ananias' purpose. He's going basically to give Paul his sight. I think that may entail more than just physical blindness. I think their revelation is going to come either at that time or very soon, very, very soon after that. Um, regardless of when he received it, though, we do know by this point that Paul had been given direct revelation of the mystery of Christ, uh, directly from Christ, and Paul's purpose was that the Gentile believers in Ephesus could perceive this insight by his writing to them. This mystery with which Paul was entrusted was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit. Now that's not to say that it was not previously revealed at all, because it was revealed and the Law and the Prophets. Rather, Scripture says, when they read the Old Covenant, the veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So, it's concealed in plain sight. That might be a way to put it. God reveals it in the Old Testament, but they read it with blinders on. They don't see it, even though it's right there in front of their face. Christ, through the Spirit, takes away the veil so that the mystery may be clearly perceived as it is revealed through the apostles. And again, this is referring to New Testament prophets. These are offices that we as cessationists believe have now ceased with the end of the apostolic era, the New Testament being completed. So this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what we saw in the last chapter, right? As was um, the second half of chapter 2. That's pretty much what it was about. Um, the Gentiles have been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel as fellow citizens. In Christ, we are now one nation, one man, one body, one household being built into one holy temple as the dwelling place for God. Consequently, we are fellow heirs of the covenants of promise which find their fulfillment in Christ. Now, we Gentiles have hope because we are no longer strangers but rather sons of God through Christ. It says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now recall the identity of the human author here. This was a star student of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, Saul of Tarsus, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was, as to the law of Pharisee, and as to zeal, the most zealous of persecutors, to the church of Jesus Christ. This was public enemy number one to the church of Jesus Christ. Okay. Scripture describes Saul prior to his conversion as one who breathed threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. So, so zealous was he for persecuting the church, the scripture describes him as if it were the very air he breathed. It was his purpose for existing was to persecute the church. But, at his own appointed time, the Lord Jesus appeared to Saul, knocked him off his horse, called him out of the darkness of Pharisaical Judaism, and into his own marvelous light for his own purpose, that Paul would preach Christ to the Gentiles. This Paul faithfully did, trading his role of persecutor for that of persecuted. Paul suffered persecution seemingly every step of the way until he finally gave his life for his fidelity to Christ and this mystery of Christ. Paul did not merely preach to the Gentiles. As we know, it was his custom when moving to a new location that he would start in the synagogues and then he would move to the Gentiles from there. Paul preached this mystery of Christ to the Jews also, that those rejecting Christ were being broken off from the root of the olive tree. And believing Gentiles, wild olive shoots, were being grafted into the root in their place. This is what Paul is referencing when he says he was called to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The mystery of Christ was revealed to Paul for the purpose that he might preach this gospel to Jews and Gentiles alike. And likewise, God has revealed the mystery to us through the apostolic witness for the purpose that we would both receive it with all its benefits within ourselves, and also share this gospel with others that they may be saved. Think back to that passage that Brian read earlier in Acts. Paul is going along just fine, telling of his conversion to Christ. They're listening to him just fine. When he says that Christ was sending him to the Gentiles, these Jews couldn't stomach that. That was the final straw. Away with this man. He's going to take the good news to the Gentiles. He must die. This is why Paul was suffering. This is why he was in prison. This was so that through the church, this mingling of Jew and Gentile, that through the church, the uh, manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's a play on words here may not immediately come across in English the Greek word that is translated as manifold is polypokulos and according to Strong's Concordance it means of differing colors so Paul is speaking of God's multicolored wisdom shining through the church in which peoples from all nations tribes and tongues come together into one community and one brotherhood John Stott comments on this verse, quote, The church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It is God's new society, and the many-colored fellowship of the church is a reflection of the many-colored wisdom of God. Quote. This wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Most commentators, or at least the ones I consulted, uh, held that this is a reference to the heavenly angels. Some held that it was a reference to fallen angels, and there were a couple of commentators who mentioned that some interpreted it to be referenced reference to maybe the Jewish rulers and Rabbis, or more generally, the political and societal structures of all secular human society? Well, I want to keep an open mind on this question for now. I tend toward the majority interpretation that this is referencing God's holy angels. I think that's who's watching this in awe. Elsewhere, scripture explicitly tells us that angels have longed to look into the good news preached to the church so for that reason, it seems to me this interpretation makes the most sense. So, if that's correct, the heavenly angels are watching this in awe and amazement as God is bringing people from all these different, diverse backgrounds, people who would otherwise certainly be divided and possibly, most likely even, hostile towards each other. And he's bringing them into this one community and even more bringing him into this one family. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I hope that that makes your mind shoot back to chapter one, the phraseology of the eternal purpose. Because in chapter one, we read that God's eternal purpose was to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. Now Paul is saying that purpose has been realized in the church now. It's not merely a future thing. It has been realized now. We cannot skip over this point lightly. As I've said, it is one of the main themes of the entire epistle. You might say that the first half of Ephesians lays out the revelation of the mystery of Christ and God's eternal purpose in it. And then the second half of Ephesians is the, therefore, how shall we now live? <clears throat> in Christ, God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth, and indeed there is a partial fulfillment of his eternal purpose found in the church now. In the very midst of the old creation, as the great light of a city set upon a hill sets the first fruits of God's new creation. In Christ, in which a new humanity, consisting of those from every nation, tribe, and tongue dwells in union with God and with each other. This is the wisdom of God that causes the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies to watch and marvel. Through the same word by whom God made all things, he is now remaking or renewing all things. He is creating a new heaven and a new earth. In which only righteousness dwells, the first fruits of which can be seen here in this room right now. How amazing is that? In Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Okay, consider this for a moment and let it add to the marvel of what we've seen thus far. After humanity fell in Adam, we were alienated and estranged from God. We were considered as children of wrath, walking in nothing but trespasses and sins following the course of the devil himself. God takes people who were like that according to the old creation, and he recapitulates or recreates them in Christ such that they go from being alienated and justly condemned under his wrath to boldly and confidently walking into his direct presence without fear or hesitation. He takes those who were alienated from him according to the old order and he atones for their sins and gives them a positive righteousness by their new head, Jesus Christ. He remakes them after the image of his son and whom he declares to the world, he is well pleased. That's why we're able to have direct access to God, our Father. That's why we're able to go directly into his presence with boldness, without fear. Because when he sees us, he sees the one whose image we bear, the image of Christ. These benefits flow to us from our union with Christ which is itself affected by God's gracious gift of faith in Him. As John Calvin explains, quote, there are three stages in our progress. First, we believe the promises of God. Next, by relying on them, we obtain that confidence, which is accompanied by holiness and peace of mind. And last of all, comes boldness, which enables us to banish spirits. And to come with firmness and steadiness into the presence of God. So, says Paul, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul, who had played a vital role in planting the church in Ephesus, was suffering over this gospel that he declared to them. He was beaten and ridiculed by his countrymen and was at the time of uh, writing the epistle in prison, and he, as he had previously referenced before, moving into this parenthesis that we talked about, we've been considering pretty much in our entire time. this um, But he says to this church whom he loved that they are not to feel sorry for him because his suffering is for their sakes. Indeed, it is their glory Paul's saying that the revelation of the mystery of Christ, which he preached, that is the inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant community through Christ, was the cause of his suffering of the Ephesian church's glory. The Ephesian church was the visible manifestation that what Paul preached is true. They could persecute him day in and day out with the very existence of churches like the one in Ephesus proved that he was telling the truth. It was undeniable. They could hate him. They could even kill him. But that church standing there still verifies that what he's saying is factual. Stott comments, quote, he is suffering in prison on their behalf as their champion." standing firm for their inclusion in God's new society. So convinced is he of the divine origin of his vision that he is prepared to pay any price to see it become a reality. That is the measure of Paul's concern for the church. And Likewise, it should cause an equal concern from the church over the truth for which he and so many others in history even today suffer. Far from causing us to shrink back in fear or despair, this sort of boldness by Christian leaders should likewise embolden us. These glorious truths embolden us to go into the direct presence of God as our Father. How much more should they embolden us to confront the enemies of Christ with the gospel of Christ? says for this reason that is the union of Jew and Gentile into one covenant community. I bow my knees before the Father. Paul moves from talking about our access to God as Father through faith in Christ to now modeling it because now he's going into the direct presence of God the Father in prayer. Praise to our Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, or as it's rendered in the King James, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Now that We can't skip over that one because that's a little different there. Obviously, how we translate the Greek ph- uh, phrase pasapatria has a big impact on how we Interpret this verse The ESV which is what I'm using The ESV rendering would indicate that Paul is thinking About the fact that all humanity Not just the Jews alone Have God as their creator and in that sense Father as well However the latter rendering King James rendering Actually makes the most sense uh, in, In its context And also with the way that the Greek is Worded Paul has labored to show that God's eternal purpose, which He set forth in Christ, was to unite all things in heaven and earth. He has shown the realization of that purpose in the church, where Jew and Gentile are united into a new humanity, constituting the one household of God, which is another term for a family unit. Okay? Now think, whose name does your family bear? Daddy's, right? More than likely, it bears the name of the Father. So, Paul starts his prayer by acknowledging what God had already accomplished. Namely, that in Christ, he has created a new single family, which unites all things in heaven and on earth under his own name as its Father and Patriarch. He prays this, that according to the riches of his glory, Again, how rich is God in glory? Infinite, right? That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the apostles' second prayer in the epistle. Call that in the second half of the first chapter, he prayed that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened and that they might know the hope to which God had called them. Now he prays again that they would be strengthened with power within the deepest regions of their beings through the Holy Spirit for the purpose that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. The idea is of Christ through his Spirit taking up a permanent residence in the heart of the believer by faith. This is not just a we're all gathered here today and we're, Lord, please come into our hearts and give us really good feelings today. And no, this is talking about Christ taking a permanent residence uh, within the heart. It's talking about him being the head of the heart. It's talking about him being the one who directs the life of uh, the believer. Okay, That's the idea here. Permanent residence. This empowers believers to be rooted and grounded in love, suggesting stability in love as a tree is rooted or a house is grounded. That is, each member of the church is rooted and grounded in Christ, which creates love for the brethren in our hearts. I know I'm belaboring the point here, but recall that the church is the multicultural, multi-ethnic family of God. The love of Christ in our hearts overcomes those boundaries which would otherwise divide us. Our Lord himself commands us, saying, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is part of that manifold wisdom of God which causes the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies to marvel. That such a diverse group of people could be united in love in Christ Jesus. Paul prays that the Ephesians, and I believe by extension us today, being grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And notice this it requires strength particularly spiritual strength, to look into and comprehend with the heart and not just the head, these marvelous truths. Yet, this is what is granted to all the saints, to comprehend the various dimensions of the Holy Temple being built as a dwelling place for God. That is the church. That's what this breadth, length, height, and depth is about. Um, You'll recall that, these chapter breaks are added later. Paul didn't do that, so he's coming back to the analogy at the end of what we call chapter two, that he's building together this holy temple. Okay, so he's praying that we would be able to comprehend God's holy temple that he's building. Likewise, he prays that the Ephesians would have strength. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now ponder that one for a moment. The apostle prays that believers would know that which surpasses knowledge itself. That is, Paul prays that the Ephesians, and again by extension, that we would know the supreme knowledge, which is more than mere knowledge, but only can be truly known experientially. namely that we would know the love of Christ. This is something we can talk about all day long, but until you experience it, you don't really know it. The Reformed Baptist pastor and Bible commentator, John Gill, expounds on this point. Forgive me, but I'm going to quote him at length here. He says, quote, The love of Christ to his own, to his church and people, is special and peculiar, free and sovereign. As early as his father's love and is durable and unchangeable, the greatest love that ever was heard of, it is matchless and unparalleled. It is exceeding strong and affectionate and is wonderful and surprising. The instances of it are his engaging as a surety for them. Is espousing both their persons and their calls. His assumption of their nature. His dying in their room instead. His payment of their debts. Atoning for their sins. And bringing in for them an everlasting righteousness. His going to prepare a place for them in heaven. His intercession for them there. His constant supply of all their wants. And the freedom and familiarity he uses them with. The saints have some knowledge of this love. Some tastes of it. Their knowledge is a feeling and an experimental one, fiducial and appropriating. And what influences their faith and love and cheerful obedience? But it is but imperfect. Though the knowledge they have of it is supereminent; it exceeds all other knowledge. Yet this love passes knowledge, not only the knowledge of natural men who know nothing of it, but the perfect knowledge of saints themselves in the present life and of angels also who desire to look into it and the mysteries of it. And especially it is so as to some of its instances, such as the incarnation of Christ is becoming poor, who is Lord of all, being made sin and a curse and suffering the just for the unjust. Now the apostle prays that these saints might know more of this love that their knowledge, which was imperfect, might be progressive. <clears throat> this is all to the end, all that we've talked about so far, to the end, that you may be filled with, or rather, filled unto, all the fullness of God. The idea being conveyed here is the same as that in other passages such as Matthew five forty eight, where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, which says, His divine the Father's divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Paul is praying for the calling up of the saints into the divine nature, or the fullness of God, that is, his perfect holiness. While this is not something that has its ultimate fulfillment in this life, but rather awaits. time of our glorification in eternity. And we will be perfected as our Father is perfect. Nevertheless, it stands as the standard and the goal for the Christian life. We should always be striving to move in this direction. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's closing doxology expands further what he has already shown. Our Father is able to know not only our spoken requests, but even our thoughts. He is able to grant the things we need and desire and abundantly more than we can even perceive. And this is according to the power that's already at work within us, informing us more and more in the image of Christ. So, what are we left to do? Join the Apostle in attributing glory to God and the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we... Thank you for this mystery of Christ. We thank you for your manifold wisdom which is shown in your church. Lord, we pray that you would continue this work that you have begun. And that you would bring it to full completion as we know you will. That you would continue to build your church and that you would bless us to partake of uh, as instruments for building it. Help us to be faithful in that way, to share the gospel, not only to the conversion of souls, but also to disciple those who have been converted. Lord, we cannot even comprehend how wise you are, but what little we do comprehend, we're thankful for. We join with the apostle in praying that you would give us more and more understanding of these things that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that our hope would grow and our joy would be full in Christ in his name we pray